Grab your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, we're working our way slowly through the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, it is the greatest sermon ever preached. And it covers just about every issue you could ever think to cover. Uh, And it is essential for our understanding of what does the gospel look like in daily life. At its center is Christ and his kingdom and the ethics of the kingdom. And you remember he began with his discussion of the blessed life. And so what we see here then is a, a carrying out of what does the blessed life look uh, uh, for us. Well, Matthew chapter 5, I didn't look up the page number again. I'm distracted as the dad in me. So if you will stand with me out of reverence of, of God's holy word. Matthew writes, the evangelist, quoting our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, starting in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent um, is already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Let's go Lord in prayer. Lord, I ask that you would uh, help us here this morning, particularly help me. Uh, I am quite distracted. Um, A big part of me does does want to be home with my little girl um, because I I know uh, it's it's been about an hour since she got the auras. And um, I I know it is uh, what is she's going through right now. I know she's scared. But Lord, we we have gathered here today to worship your holy name as 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 we have sang. And Lord, we ask that in this moment, at this time, that you would... Um, convict our hearts. So to do so, Lord, open our entire being um, that we may become more like Jesus. And given the world that we live in, we desperately need this message. So may I decrease so that you can increase. Name your son, we pray. Amen. Be seated. Let me just ask you just a quick survey. What is America's pastime? Now, Traditionally, we would say it is Major League Baseball. Now, to answer that question, I think one of the easiest ways for us to answer is to look at annual revenue. So let's look at Major League Baseball. In the year 2022, they took in $11 billion. That is a lot of money, $11 billion uh, for just for Major League Baseball. That's not counting uh, AAA or AA or college or high school or any of that, just Major League Baseball. We could also do the same thing with the National Basketball Association, the NBA. They're, they brought in, in the same year, $9 billion. If, you, if you're surprised by that, remember, baseball, uh, they, they play like 8,000 games in a year. Uh, basketball, only 2,000. But nevertheless, now, now again, that's only NBA. That's not college basketball. It's not, it's not anything else. But $9 billion. Let's then look at the National Football League, the NFL, brings in an astounding $17 billion. And I don't have the numbers. I didn't look them up. I bet college football rivals that. And I think college basketball would rival, and and, and maybe to a lesser extent, but still rival uh, the NBA. These are astounding numbers. And when you measure what it is we spend money on, certainly the NFL would rank there at the top. The, uh, uh, The highest... Uh, uh, ratings of, of television ratings every year. We know this. We'll be this way next year. It was this way last year and this year is Super Bowl Sunday. We know this. NFL is absolutely astounding. But what if I told you that 
The NFL isn't even close in terms of revenue of what it is uh, that we spend our money on. Globally, and of course all these numbers are global. These are global uh, institutions. Globally, the number one thing, uh, the highest revenue activity is pornography. An astounding $97 billion spent alone around the world. In the United States, that breaks down to about 10 to $12 billion. So you can take what the Americans spend just on pornography, and, and it matches that of the NBA and Major League Baseball, just the United States. Those numbers of the NFL, Major League Baseball, all that are global numbers. But, but just here in the United States, 10 to $12 billion. Now, that doesn't put into consideration free online content, prostitution, human trafficking, and other sexualized consumption. Human traffickers, we know, are motivated by money. According to the Department of Homeland Security, the global profits of human trafficking alone grosses $150 billion dollars. Now, that is broken down into two categories. There is uh, labor exploitation because human trafficking is a postmodern way of saying slavery. So there is uh, the slavery of labor, and then there is sexual slavery. And it breaks down to, if I remember right, about 80 20%. 80% of slavery is labor. 20% of them is, is sexualized. According to Time magazine, each victim of sexual exploitation and human trafficking brings in about $21,000. Each victim, $21,000. Now, this is on top of all the mainstreaming of perversion. Sexual sin lies at the, at the center of both power, particularly politics, and entertainment. You cannot turn on your streaming service without having to go through certain websites saying, what is it that's actually in this film? I'm willing to bet many parents have taken their kids to watch some superhero movie or, or some latest kids thing only to realize when you get there that there are messaging there that would have been unthinkable just 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. We understand that it isn't just the revenue issues. It is, it is deep embedded within human or particularly the American culture. After all, the only thing we seem to talk about as Americans now is sex. The only thing we seem to talk about. Every day we're having to address the issue. Righteousness, we need to understand, especially those who still think America is Jerusalem instead of Babylon. Righteousness is abnormal in our country. Perversion is normal. If you want to look like a weirdo, go out in the public square and say something like, you should only have sex exclusively within marriage. And then report back to me about who felt like the biggest weirdo. The highest virtue in our culture right now is lust. Now, for under, in order for us to understand this passage, we, we need to put up some, some rules, okay? So let me, let me be a good school teacher and give you the rules up front, okay? Four things you need to know and, and we need to address right away. The first thing is when it comes to sexual sin, this is not just a problem among young people. It's not. This is a problem among people. Uh, but we, we have this thing that, well, young people, because they're, they're, they're discovering particularly, uh, they've hit puberty and everything that comes with the hormones, that now this is their problem. Go to a, to a high school. Man, they're, they're crazy. I'm like, you could go probably to your workplace right now and find some of the same issues. Sexual sin is not just a problem with men. It's not just a problem with men. It is a, it's a significant issue within women. In fact, the, the, uh, the, the fastest growing users with pornography are women. This is a problem 
with men and women. Because men and women are, are we, we are sexual beings. We are embodied beings at the same time. That, that we, we, we sin in our own unique ways. This, this affects both of us. I'll never forget, um, I, I gave, uh, the, the, I've added two, two, two to this list. But, but I gave this list to, to, to a, a different congregation many years ago. And I'll never forget, I had an elderly lady come up to me at the end. Sweet lady, love Jesus, loves the church, all that. She says, thank you, Brother Kyle. Our young men needed to hear that this morning. So excuse me if I emphasize this is not just for young women or young men, rather. It is also we need to know sexual sin is not just a problem with sinners. That is unbelievers. This is a problem within the church. How many how many uh, ministers need to uh, disqualify themselves? How many deacons need to disqualify themselves? How many church members need to walk out because they were offended by the sexual ethic of the church? This is a problem equally within the church. Finally. Sexual sin is not just a problem with those still unmarried. This creeps within the marriage as well. Many young men that I've counseled really fall for this, where, where they think, well, once I get married, all these temptations will go away. And that's when I know this person has a real problem that needs to be addressed. With that said, let's look at the text. Let's start as we did with, with what Jesus spoke previously about anger. Let's start with the outward legalistic law here in verse 27. He says that you have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That, of course, is taken directly from, um, directly from the Ten Commandments. Now, what the religious elites would do with lust is what they would do with anger. Is They would say, well, the law says don't commit violence, don't murder. And the law says, don't commit adultery. Well, most of us here would say, well, then God must be really proud of me. Look at how holy I am. I mean, I haven't shot anyone lately. You know, I'm 38. Haven't done it in 38 years. God must be really proud of me. I haven't committed adultery. Been married 16 years. I'm, I'm, I'm going right down the right path, right? Aren't I so holy? But what Jesus does is he reveals actually what is wrong with approaching the gospel in religious uh, context like that. For example, when the rabbis came to this, uh, to the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, they, they, they would limit what the definition of adultery actually is. They would say that it is only committing adultery when you are committing it against someone else's spouse. Furthermore, if they were single, say, say you're a single woman, is, is now you're not guilty of adultery because they're single. You haven't violated their marriage. They're not married. Or if you commit adultery, which I would call adultery still, if you committed some act of fornication with uh, someone who is a Gentile. So, so even if one spouse is a Jew, if you commit it against the Gentile, it's not adultery. You haven't violated the seventh commandment. Now, that may seem odd, perhaps even shocking to many of us, but it shouldn't because what you get in legalistic societies are exemptions. Have you ever noticed this? Have you ever noticed whenever government passes a law, immediately they have to pass exemptions? This is the way law works. Now, there's some good in that when it comes to, to the government, I guess. I don't know. I'm not an expert on that. But this is a real problem when it comes to the moral law. And so what you have is a blanket statement of do not commit adultery with all the footnotes attached at the bottom. And that's what they're doing here. We do the same thing when we try to convince ourselves that we are holy and good, yet, yet um, uh, can, can found a loophole over here. Uh, I remember when I was a youth minister, I've told you this before, the number one question I got in five years of youth ministry was, how far is too far? Number one question. What's really being asked there? It is revealing that what we want is to claim we are righteous while not being righteous. What we want are footnotes 
What we want are loopholes. And we see this all the time. Well, no one got hurt. No one needs to know. It was consensual. We come up with loopholes all the time, even today. But even if we were to limit uh, sexual sin to outward actions, does that still make us righteous? What do we do in that context about the objectifying of women on Instagram and TikTok? What do we do about engaging in secret fantasies? What do we do about countless hours fantasizing about relationships, flings, or voyeurism? Are we righteous? I mean, no one else seems to know about it. It's the privacy of our own phone and desktop and laptop. It's when I'm on break at work. I'm sitting in the car, minding my own business. Are you, am I now righteous? Can I claim to be righteous because I've obeyed the outward legalistic law? What Jesus does in, context, in, in, in contrast is he gives us the inward loving law. In contrast to religious elites, what Jesus does in verse 28 is he equates uh, a lust with adultery. Now this, again, it sounds strange to us, but he's already done something like this. Before he equated anger and hate with murder, now he's going to equate the lust with adultery. In both instances, and we'll see other examples of this, he equates the heart with actions. You, you, you don't do anything on the outside that hasn't taken place on the inside. It is out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, Jesus will say later. And this is true when it comes to sexual sin. The smallest glance or even the tiniest longing for someone has led us down a path that will lead to destruction. Now, what is lust then? We're using this word. In, in simple, it is the seeking of temporary satisfaction under the delusion it will bring us eternal pleasure. Lust is a sin of the heart that attacks genuine love. Rather than finding satisfaction with where we are, we assume that this other relationship, this other excursion, we're just a few clicks away from finding true peace. And then we turn others as a result into objects of our desire. We end up looking elsewhere, outside of the gospel for joy and satisfaction. Let me give you just three things that lust produces as a result. First of all, it produces discontentment. It produces discontentment. What if I had married that other person? What if that relationship had worked out? What if instead of, instead of rushing to get married when I was young, I waited until I got this job and I met Sally over on the other end? Jim, who's on, who's, who's, who sits right next to me. He listens to me. It feeds discontentments. Rather than finding contentment in what God has given us in our spouse, we long for something forbidden, a fruit, if you will, because what we have isn't good enough. We must have something else. And that is fed by pride. Pride that says that my perceived happiness is paramount. And so if you're in a marriage, for example, you think, well, I don't feel happy, the, the, the true God of, of, of our culture. If I don't feel happy, then, then my happiness trumps the happiness and goodness of my spouse. I must go chase what makes me happy. It's pride. And all of that will feed into resentments. Because what you'll discover is you can chase lust all you want to. And what you will find is disappointment and misery in the end. Emptiness. One of the things we have discovered is that pornography, as well as other sexual sin, convinces men that women are just like men. 
And so when fantasy becomes reality, men will enter to a relationship thinking that fantasy is reality. This, this person they're dating, this person they're wanting to marry, this person they've fallen over heads with, this person they've been fantasizing about for weeks and months now that, 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 that's across the street or in the next cubicle, whatever it is, that their relationship will look like what they've been watching. By the way, the same thing happens to women. Engaging in, in certain literature and movies and, and scenes, it's fantasy all the same. You, women convince themselves that men are just like women. And so when they enter the relationship, they want to be swept off their feet, treated like a princess, you know, a guy who will do anything uh, that, 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 that is within the literature, within the storytelling, whatever it might be. And what you discover is when you enter into reality, it's nothing like fantasy. And so you're going to hop from one bed to another, one relationship to another, one fling to another, all in pursuit of something you could have had if you were living in reality. But instead, you're living in fantasy. And fantasies aren't real. They're not real. And that's just going to feed resentment. What lust ultimately does is it takes away God's design seen in, in the other person and turns them into an object for our own sinful desire. Let me give you four reasons why lust destroys marriages and relationships. The first one is lust dehumanizes. It dehumanizes. Lust turns God's image bearers into objects of our enjoyment. In 2009, National Review published a, an article regarding a study that just astounded everyone. Now, I'm going to give you the study. You tell me if you're astounded by this, okay? I just couldn't believe it. I just could not. And I'm a guy. And I just couldn't believe this, right? What did they do is they did a study of men, and they showed them uh, images, uh, uh, inappropriate images, and then they studied – it was a neurological study. They studied the brain. And what they discovered is that when exposed – the male part of the brain that lit up is the part associated with tool use, hammers and nails and screwdrivers and everything else. That's the part of the brain that lit up when they saw these images. Furthermore, they noticed that men associate those images with first-person action verbs, verbs like I push, I grasp, I handle. Here's the article, quote, and in a shocking find, some of the men studied showed no activity in the part of the brain that usually responds when a person ponders another's intentions. Think about it. If you're using a tool, you're just hammering away. Uh, do you care about the hammer's emotional state? No. When, when you're trying to tighten that screw, are you worried about the, the screwdriver's uh, happiness? No. And they were shocked to find that, that when men see these images, Empathy and sympathy, love and emotion do not register to them. The article goes on, quote, This means that these men see women as sexually inviting, but they are not thinking about their minds or their souls or their, their hearts or their well-being. The lack of activation in the social cognition area is really odd. Because it hardly ever happens. Men, is it odd? You've been struggling with it since you hit puberty. Go to the locker room of any middle school boys. You tell me if, if in the language they use, the words they, they choose, if they care at all about the emotional well-being, the physical well-being of the girls they're fantasizing about. It's not odd. I could have told you this when I was 12. And I was a sports jock. 
on the bus on my way to away games. Not a secret. But it's interesting, isn't it? That, lust, that lust dehumanizes. What you end up doing is you see the other person again as objects of your desires, not people who, you, who should be loved. They have a purpose, and the purpose is to serve me, not commitment or love or joy or any of that. So lust dehumanizes co-image bearers. Secondly, lust is self-centered. Is, is it, you should already be able to tell. The gospel commands we be other-centered. We put other people ahead of ourselves. After all, Jesus did the same thing at the cross where he died for us, not for himself, but for us. So too, uh, we are called to, to mimic the same. Lust, however, puts the needs of the self ahead of the needs of others. Lust is all, all about me and my pleasure. Thirdly, lust robs intimacy that, of joy, not job or joy, or, or Job, sorry, joy. Pardon the uh, typo there. Lust robs intimacy of joy. Lust takes us from the joy of sex to the, uh, to the happiness of lust. That is, one is temporary at best. The other is long-lasting. Intimacy in marriage will stir unity and love. Lust will stir emptiness and loneliness. Because you can satisfy your lust and you're still alone in your room in the darkness. You can satisfy your lust and yet the person whom you're using does not care about you. Love and marriage will, will provide for us unity, commitment, love, the things that we actually desire for, but we've, we've shortchanged love in favor of lust because it's easier. Lust will always fall short of genuine love in marriage. Marriage requires and therefore enjoys the benefit of commitment. I don't know if you ever thought about this. When you commit to your spouse, get this, they're committed to you. Did you ever notice that about marriage? That's not the way it happens in lust. Because when lust is the, uh, is the drive, your commitment is not for the well-being of others, nor are they committed to your well-being. So you end up with two losers in the end. One preacher I heard many years ago made the point, the difference between a happily married man you've never heard of and Hugh, Hugh Hefner is that Hugh Hefner will die alone. He's lived his life pursuing lust and, and the gratification of the flesh. Here is that married man that you and I have never met. He'll die surrounded by spouse, children, grandchildren, and even more. Which one is the better life? Which one is better lust or love? In the safety net of marriage comes joy, love, and peace. This is why marital intimacy is a biblical imperative. Intimacy within marriage is a sign of marriage health. It protects, it pleases, it produces, it loves, it unites, it secures, it honors. It's a good thing, a God-given thing as his purpose. Fourthly, lust is unquenchable. Like any drug, sexual addiction might begin with a single image, but over time, much more will be required. Idolatry is an unquenchable fire. It is like drinking water from the ocean. You can drink, you can drink, and you can drink, but you can just, you get thirstier and thirstier by the minute. I shared this illustration, I believe this past Wednesday, we looked at Rachel and Leah, but I stole the, uh, the story from, from somewhere else. I think I used it at TFCA a few weeks ago. But the way Bushmen find water in the desert, you know how they do this? They get a bunch of salt and they put it in a small hole. And they wait for uh, baboons to come by who love salt. They actually love salt. They'll put their hand in the hole and they get a hold of the salt. Now, 
They can't get their hand out, right? Because they won't let go of the salt. If they would let go of the salt, they could get their hand out, but they're not going to let go of it. So what the Bushmen do when, they're, when, when the baboon is trapped is they put the baboon in a cage. And then they feed the baboon more salt and they just consume them with salt. Well, what does salt do? It makes you thirsty. And then they let the baboon free and they follow the monkey to the source of water. That's how you find water. That's brilliant right there. You won't get that in gender studies at Harvard, will you? That's good stuff. That's real good right there. But if the baboon wanted to be free, all he had to do is let go of the salt. Water is better for him than salt. So too, if you want to be free, if you want to experience genuine joy and commitment and love, choose love, not lust. Because the more we indulge ourselves of lust, the more we will demand of it and the lonelier we will become. Let me briefly, in the time that remains, look at how do we respond to lust? How do we respond to this issue of lust, according to Jesus? If lust is equated with adultery, as Jesus does here, then it should be treated with seriousness. And that's really the problem, isn't it? Is is no one bats an eye until someone does something. And in comes Jesus and says, you know what, if you dress the heart, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So maybe the heart should be our priority, not just our actions. Notice what Jesus says starting in verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of the members than your whole body should be thrown into hell. Gehenna, if you're into Greek. If your right hand causes you to sin and cut it off, throw it away. It is better that you lose one of the members than your whole body go into hell. Gehenna, of course, is a garbage dump outside. Uh, we can discuss that in detail at a later time. Notice what is Jesus' solution to lust. It is to tear off parts of your body, right? Well, with that said, let's close our body, our, our, our Bibles, close our eyes and pray. If you have any eyes left, let's, let's pray, right? Let's just go home. Problem solved, right? Here's the first thing we need to know. This is hyperbole. Jesus isn't in favor of mutilating the, the, the body. That's what secularists are doing now. That's not, that's not what Jesus is, is into, our early church theologian Origen, very influential guy, wrote the first systematic theology, um, theological textbook. He famously castrated himself so that he can teach uh, the Bible to women without the accusation of sexual sin. What's the problem with that? Well, first of all, if that is the approach we take this text, you and I, every single one of us here will run out of body parts. Right? <laughs> Cutting off and cutting out your eyes doesn't resolve lust. We are too creative for that, especially with modern technology with the way it is. Furthermore, it violates Jesus' point. The point isn't outward action solve the inward corruption. That's, that's not what Jesus' point is. His point is you should take this very seriously to the point of, of, of severing your arm. Now, I do believe it's hyperbole. Don't go out there with machete and saying, I'm doing this for Jesus. To be clear, I'm not saying that. At the same time, why are we so quick to dismiss what Jesus says here? Think about it. We don't want Jesus to take purity seriously because we don't want to take purity seriously. Let me ask you, in a modern America, 21st century, postmodern America, which one will be easier to convince a young man or young woman or a middle-aged man or middle-aged woman? Which one is more easier? To cut off the arm or to throw away the cell phone? 
Which one will be easier? Which one will be easier to say, you know what? No more internet, Netflix or anything else. It's not good for you. Or to tell someone you should gouge out your eyes. Which one will be easier? One can wonder, maybe we should take Jesus seriously. Because I've had these conversations. You know, every night I got my cell phone there and I'm just strolling. I'm just, I'm just looking at things I know I shouldn't have. I'm like, well, then get rid of the cell phone. Oh, preacher, you don't understand. I got to have my cell phone. Well, are you talking on it? No. <laughs> Anyways, so, but uh, I, I grew up in the time when phones were for talking. Anyways, so. Do we take lust as seriously as Jesus does here? Are you willing to close those accounts? Are you willing to change positions in your workplace for your own soul? Are you willing to take drastic measures for the good of your marriage and for the good of fellow image bearers? And if not, why not? How can we fight against lust? A lot of what everything Jesus says here, a couple things. This is not an exhaustive list, but is a place to start. First of all, we need to be satisfied in Christ. Lust is an expression of idolatry. At the end of the day, when we talk about violence and hate, when we talk about um, um, lust, the words we use, all that, those are inward manifestations of idolatry. And our hearts, Calvin said, are are idol-making factories. G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite quotes in this regard is, when a man knocks on the door of a brothel, he is searching for God. I think he's exactly right. And that's why when you treat lust as only as turn off the phone, cut off the arm with that, that, that may be helpful in some sense. I think that could be a practical point, but it doesn't address the hearts. What we're really looking for is God. Until we find contentment, joy, peace, love, and ultimate satisfaction in Christ, no strategy will work. You understand that in Christ right now, you have everything you ever need or want in life. You have it right now. It's yours. Just take it. It's yours. But we convince ourselves that Jesus, though good, isn't good enough. And watch yourself. You'll do the same thing to your husband. Watch yourself. You'll do the same thing with your job. Watch yourself. You'll do the same thing with your political party. Because nothing is ever good enough if Jesus isn't good enough. Until you find satisfaction in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the blessing of the community of saints he's given us in the local church, you will forever be chasing your tail. And there is no ending of that race. Secondly, rekindle biblical marriage and intimacy. This may actually be the part I get the most trouble in. Although I believe in purity, I do have some concerns with what we might call purity culture. And I grew up in, the, in, in that sort of world with the rings and the promises and everything else. And, there's, and on the surface, there's nothing wrong with those. However, what it does is it promotes legalistic standards while it simultaneously tolerates uh, unexpressed lust. See, what was concerned with, with, with the church I grew up in and all my friends and everything wasn't that we had lust in our hearts. We had an abundance of that. The, the, what they were fighting against was the acting out of those lusts. Now, I don't want us to act out lust, but it never addressed the fact that we were looking for love in all the wrong places. Just no one knew about it. We could keep our purity rings. We, we, can, we could keep our pledges and brag about it, how we waited until marriage or at least till college, right? All the while, we were just as depraved and corrupt on the inside. The Bible views intimacy as God created and good. Like anything in life, 
Good things require some boundaries. But purity culture demonized intimacy, and that view is unbiblical. The point was, don't talk about it. Don't think about it. Don't express it. Don't do this. Don't do that. And so when you got married, you're like, well, I've been told my whole life this is bad. That's not the biblical perspective. The biblical perspective is is that marital intimacy is good and God-glorifying, and we should not rob each other of that gift. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, it's always the passage preachers like me want to quote so that you don't yell at me, you yell at the Apostle Paul. He writes, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, each woman her own husband. There's marriage right there. So Paul is a realist that this is an issue and it's a good desire that we that we abuse. So it is to be fit within marriage, a man to a woman, a woman to a man. The husband, he adds, verse 3, should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Pause there. You see what we said about lust. Lust is all about um, um, the self, the pride and fantasy, and that I use the other to satisfy the self. Gospel marriage is, I am here committed in loving relationship to serve the good of my spouse. What are the needs of my spouse? And I will meet them. What you'll find, we have two people who are using the other for their own good. They will both end up losers because you get tired of being used. But when two people are married under the, 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 the banner of the gospel, you have two servants who are giving and giving and giving without demanding. But because both are giving, both are receiving, and it becomes a gift, not an entitlement. It's a much more beautiful image that we have here. Paul will go on to make it clear, do not deprive one another, except for a limited time, you know, for prayer or whatnot. But be sure you come back for Satan is coming. Notice how lust is equated with, with the, 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 the demonic and how often we surrender to it. Love one another, husbands and wives, with affectionate joy. Do not deprive one another of affection, love, and connection. And do not let routine and busyness ruin your marriage. For those who are single and young, pursue marriage now. It is not good that we are waiting, the average young man or woman, till they're about 30 to get married. And what a wreckage we've made of our lives. Pursue it now. And don't let, tell, don't let people tell you you're too young. Are you an adult? Act like it. The problem isn't that we're too young, is that we, we, we've, we've perpetuated adolescence. I was 21 when I got married. The greatest uh, regret I've had in life is that I didn't get married when I was 20. For one of the reasons, we would have gotten more money from FASFA. Anyways, moving on. Oh, and the whole part about an extra year with my beautiful bride. Yeah, that, that part too. But we were in college, right? Like, those FASFA dollars, man. I mean, we go from mom and dad's uh, uh, income to our lack of income. Boy, um, we, anyway, I'm going to stop there. I'm, she's taking care of our, of our daughter and uh, would have been funner if she were here. Um, thirdly, be humbly wise. Spiritual growth requires us to be humbly honest about our weakness and temptations and to wisely guard our hearts. Maybe it is your phone. Maybe it's that streaming service. Maybe it's a book series. Maybe it's certain friends. Maybe it's a certain situation. Maybe it's all those business trips you've been taking. 
You know where you are weak. And you must be humble about that weakness. You are too weak to say, well, that was last time. It won't happen again. No, it, it will. Be humbly wise. And beyond the outward manifestations of lust, can we address the causes of your lust? Could it be loneliness? Could it be rejection? Frustration? Aimless entertainments? What's really fueling it? Fourth, and I think this is finally, I'm exhausted. If lust is self-centered, gospel living is other-centered. We've already looked at this some. But there's an area where this will be controversial because we live in weird times. It wouldn't have been controversial in previous generations. There is a clear discussion that we need to have here about the clothes we wear, how we carry ourselves, how we act, and the words we choose. You have an obligation for the spiritual well-being of everyone you meet. It would be nice if we acted like it. Your need for attention, your need for affection and respect do, does not trump the spiritual and moral health of your neighbor. Instead, let us see spiritual intimacy as an opportunity to celebrate God's gift of love to one another and to those that we have committed ourselves to. So let us serve one another. Let us love one another. Let us grow together. We have chosen lust over love. And we're more miserable because of it. I don't know about you. We, we grew up pretty poor. And, and as a result, one of the things that mom and dad uh, did when they went grocery shopping is, is they always got the, uh, none of the brand name stuff. Like we never got the brand name cereal. The brand name, you know, drinks, you know, we, we, I grew up on Sam's Choice. And if we wanted to splurge, it was RC. To this day, I can down an RC to the glory of God. It's good stuff. And we, 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 got, we got the cheap stuff, right? And all of them had names that you knew exactly where they were selling. They just couldn't use the name. It's trademarked, copyrighted. So I did a Google search. I had nothing else to do this week, I guess, you might think. And I wanted to look at what are some of the funnest examples of off-brand knockoff items. Here are some of my favorites. I hope you don't mind. This entertained me. Instead of My Little Pony, we got Demon Donkey. <laughs> that one may actually be a little more accurate, but, but, you know, that's my little girl's not here to defend herself. Sony PlayStation. My son's uh, playing with the kids, so his ears would peak up, uh, perk up if you hear me say Sony PlayStation. Instead of Sony, what if we play with a phony, right? <laughs> uh, there, there's some truth in that as well. Maybe you like Crest toothpaste, right? Have you ever tried Crust toothpaste? I think they're selling the wrong thing there. I mean, you, you're, you finish that, that tube, you're going to be disappointed. Instead of Star Wars, we get Star Knight. There is Darth Vader on a police motorcycle. That is a different galaxy far, far away. My personal favorite, instead of Nike, which means to conquer in Greek, there's Likey. Right? I would buy that. I would buy everything they have, stock and everything. That is great. Likey. <laughs> I likey. <laughs> well, in the world saturated with ugliness of perversion and lusts, we have for far too long bought the cheap brand. We have chosen lust instead of love. We have chosen what is cheap and easy and empty 
No wonder we are starving. We are desperate for beauty and love. So let me just encourage you as we leave. Choose Christ. Choose real righteousness. Choose real beauty. Choose real love. And if you want to know what real love is, look to the cross of Jesus Christ. And do not settle for anyone else that you will commit your life to who will not simultaneously look at the cross with you. For it is there and only there you will find love. Everything else is a cheap write-off brand. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.